I'm Anthony, your host. One of the most difficult questions to study in the case of Byzantium is that of social class, in general, of the entire social system of Byzantium. And it's not just difficult for the reasons for which it's difficult in all pre-modern societies, uh, namely that we don't have much data. It's actually more difficult in the case of Byzantium than for many other pre-modern societies, uh, ancient and medieval, um, at least the ones that I've studied. And the reason for that is the following. For most other societies, the society itself gives us a kind of framework, a skeleton, um, by which to discuss its, um, its social structure. And we may accept that framework, we may modify it, we may even come to reject it, but it gives us a working tool, something to start with, a, a preliminary grid to test our evidence against. So for example, for classical Athens, we know how important the distinction between citizens and slaves and alien non-citizen residents was. And accordingly, we have developed a model for Athenian society that's structured around this sort of citizens club idea and everything is organized around the institutions of the democracy that adult male citizens had access to and other groups had differential access to power and opportunities and so on. Likewise, in Republican Rome, there is a social structure that is represented in the sources, ranging from senators to equites, the knights, and then the citizen body is divided into a series of groups, um, often uh, property-related, that corresponded to their position also in the in the Roman army when they were uh, drafted. The Western Middle Ages, we have a system that is reflected in many sources. Um, now, it loosely goes by the word feudalism, a term, a concept, and an and a, and a interpretive model that has been criticized a lot recently. Um, some medievalists will not refuse to use it. Uh, but nevertheless, it uh, provides a picture, an articulated picture of medieval society in some regions where people's place and their roles and their relationships with each other are defined either through law or custom. Um, but you know, individuals are recognizably belong to particular social groups, social classes in, in, a, in a hierarchy um, or in a kind of division of, of labor and rights. Again, these models that we find in the sources are as much to be critiqued by us as used in a sort of straightforward, naive way. Nevertheless, they are there. In the case of Byzantium, it's not entirely clear where we're supposed to start. It's a little bit clearer in the early period, uh, what's sometimes called the later Roman Empire or late antiquity, when we actually see reflected in the law and in the narrative sources different kinds of groups that are defined by their uh, particular relationship to the state um, in terms of their uh, tax or rent liabilities and also the perks that the state gives them. So we have, again, from senators and soldiers to city councilors to lots of different kinds of farmers and to slavery, which slavery was a very big part of life in, in the early Byzantine Empire. But when we turn to the Middle Byzantine period, it's not entirely clear 
what model we're supposed to use. A lot of those previous categories break down. Um, we don't have city councils really anymore. We don't have explicit um, definitions of different categories of farmers. And also slavery, while present, is not a structuring feature um, of the Middle Byzantine perception of society. So slaves existed, but they're not used in the sort of Byzantine social imaginary. So yes, obviously we have people who are close to the court, and they have titles and money, though we're not entirely sure where that money came from. Uh, so economic classifications are also very difficult. We just don't have economic data in order to sort of set social definitions aside and use strictly economic ones just in terms of wealth. It's pretty clear that wealth and social class don't always correspond. And also these were not categories used by the Byzantines. So what we find when we look through the sources are very rhetorical categories in the end. Um, so there are the people who are called powerful and there are people who are called weak and sometimes people are called poor. And it doesn't seem that there was any fixed sort of legal or social standard for who got to be called those things. So some cases are obvious. So you're general at the court, paid hefty sums. It's pretty clear you're rich and powerful and you have connections and all that. But it's possible that you're out the next year and someone else takes your place. And, and then what are you? Um, it's not clear. All of which is to say that Social history is very difficult to do because it's not clear where we're supposed to start. Now, one of the best discussions of this problem that tries to come to terms with social class as it's reflected in the Byzantine sources is the, an article by Efiraya, uh, who is my guest today. You will find um, a, a reference to the article in the description of the podcast episode. Efi teaches for the um, Hellenic Open University has written a number of uh, studies on various aspects of Byzantine history. Her other studies reveal a tremendous expertise in untangling and understanding the details of how institutions worked on a sort of, through economic and documentary sources. Um, and if you've worked with those <laughs> in a Byzantine context, you know just how convoluted and difficult they, they may be. But this article has long struck me as a very important um, gateway into the problems of social class. I, I, I assign it to my students. I tell them, here, read this and, and tell me how you think that we should proceed in reconstructing the, the contours and the structures of Byzantine society. And I, so I strongly recommend it. Here then is my conversation with Effie. Hello, Effie. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. So You've written uh, an extraordinary and wide-ranging article on social class in Byzantium. Yeah. This is a very difficult topic. Um, and I wanted to uh, just say a few words to explain why I think it's a difficult topic. Okay. Um, and that is that in a very general sense, uh, we can talk about different social classes in Byzantium. They're very easy to identify. They're rich people, and they're poor people, and they're mm -hmm. people with political power and, and people who don't have political power. And there's a political structure and an ecclesiastical structure and there are soldiers and so forth. And all that is very easy to find in the sources, but it's also rather banal, like most society, yeah. historical societies have those kinds of things. Um, and the problem that I think as Byzantinists that we face is that 
it's um, it's not difficult. It's it's difficult to understand the scaffold of this society, the toscari. Mm-hmm. That is how exactly it's articulated and mm-hmm. by what mechanisms, be they legal, political, or social, all the different classes were articulated and defined. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're trying to get at in your article: is that yes. how exactly are these different classes defined, and how do economic and political and social um, categories kind of blur into each other? Um, so before we get into the details, um, could I just ask you to say a few words about you know how how you understood the problem that you were trying to approach, um, and and in using the the concept of social class in particular. Well, first of all, thank you for all these kind words. I mean, I don't really believe that this article is so important, but. Um, and I also believe that it's a very difficult topic and um, uh, a very difficult subject for either reading or writing, I mean, for, for the author. Um, uh, what I do when I write is that I don't really have an ending. I don't have a purpose. I don't begin with wanting to prove something. Um, so I begin, yeah, I begin because I have questions myself. Right. And writing them, uh, writing about them, about these questions is a way to approach a subject. And I never know in advance where this uh, subject and the reasoning that I use leads me. And when it comes to this particular article, the, the bibliography is so much, I mean, the literature that exists out there is unbelievably uh, wide and complicated and loaded with uh, social terminology that uh, every author has the good intention, you know, to apply it in uh, Byzantine studies. But in the end, it comes down to uh, financial issues like describing fortunes and describing power and um, describing uh, social status and how it is built. Um, so. Um, in what I had to do, it was to um, not not ignore all that, but to keep my line of thinking and my writing into a particular road that uh, would answer in the end my own questions instead of um, falling in the trap to um, take uh, the path that others have have. Uh, have made with their writings. Right. Well, so first of all, I completely applaud the uh, the method, which is to ask questions and see where it leads. And I think this always leads to the best results, uh, as opposed to uh, knowing already where you're going to end up, which I think is something that is uh, encouraged a lot by, by grant writing in particular. Uh, to to okay. be successful at grants, you have to already tell them what, okay. what, you, what you're mm-hmm. going to find. Which, oh. op, you know, makes it, you know, opens a question as to why you need to do the research to find it since you already know it. But anyway, so you're right. So you mentioned in the article that much of the scholarship tries to look at, you know, ostensibly is looking at social class, but is actually delineating economic groups. Yes. And it's not entirely clear that those two things overlap. And a lot of um, other scholarship is actually looking at uh, political pressure mm-hmm. groups, that is, Mm-hmm. which groups are visible in the sources as exerting some sort of pressure usually on the imperial court mm-hmm. and trying to sort of reverse engineer the social history from those groups. Yeah. Uh, but you take a different approach. Um, and in particular, um, so I picked out a, a sentence that you use that in Byzantium there were no delineated social boundaries um, and there was no 
particular group or class that is circumscribed within a particular set of rules. Um, so you mm -hmm. see the classes that you find as not being uh, specifically defined either by law or, you know, by, by in the West we have like family rule or, or mm -hmm. so on. Um, so could we unpack this a little <coughs> bit, especially in terms of what would the alternatives look <coughs> like? So when you say there are no delineated social boundaries, like where do we have such delineated social boundaries in other societies? What do those look like? Okay, I think I'm going to surprise you a bit here okay. because I don't really think that this is true. I mean, this is a very widely accepted notion that there is no delineated social class in Byzantium. Um, it is and it is not true. I mean, there are restrictions. For example, you could do anything in Byzantium so long as you had money. But then again... Um, Everything was regulated but by what the emperor wanted. So if you had money and you wanted to enter the imperial circles, for example, by buying a title or a position in the administrative machine, then someone would have to authorize this, this purchase. Um, and this one would be someone who was very high standing or the emperor himself, because Justinian did make this switch in the 6th century and allowed um, the emperor to have a say in who, for example, uh, enters the ranks of um, the imperial guards. Um, but on the, other, on the other way, on the other hand, we, we forget that uh, Byzantium is the continuation of Rome and Rome did have lots, lots of uh, social barriers. Um, uh, I remind to everybody um, that they, the Romans had the census where everybody was uh, classified according to um, his assets. Um, later, uh, in the 4th century, we find people uh, stranded to their own profession uh, for particular, this was done for particular, um, mostly financial uh, reasons. Um, but uh, if we try to imagine how this worked, it means in reality, I mean, what this meant, it meant that people had little chance for social upgrade in the fourth century, according to this type of legislation. There were, of course, runaways, for example. I mean, the, the laws are uh, filled with information about runaways, mostly workers uh, from uh, the fields. They didn't want to stay there and work day and night for someone else, so they left. Uh, but uh, mostly people were stranded. And there is, of course, the uh, famous infamous category. The infamous are, are in reality the dishonored. They are the people who have done something, an offense, and for this reason, their political rights, their civil rights, were uh, removed. There can be, um, the, they could be removed partly or totally. But there were also uh, people who were um, classified to this uh, category uh, because of their profession. Like, for example, uh, people working in uh, entertainment, theaters and uh, the hippodrome and, yeah, so, yeah. and so on. Um, they could not, um, it didn't matter if they had money or if they had no, no money, if they were good people or if they were not good people, if they changed profession at some point, or if they didn't, who, who did they hang out with? It didn't matter at all. They were just infamous. And this meant that they couldn't um, enter any honorable uh, class in uh, early Byzantium. Like they couldn't become senators. They couldn't become uh, not even soldiers. They couldn't enter the curia, the provincial um, 
parliaments, that is, the, of the cities, uh, no matter how much money they had. So in reality, they couldn't improve their own uh, way of living and their social standing in reality, neither right. for themselves or for their uh, offspring, right? right? Yeah, yeah. So um, I remind to the people, to everybody who's listening, that uh, the grandest example of that is Theodora herself, the, I mean, Justinian's wife, okay? For marrying her, Justinian had to produce a special law. And that law, in reality, proclaims that if someone wanted to change the way of living and prove that he led, uh, he or she led a good life, uh, a reformed life, after leaving that profession, that dishonorable profession uh, behind, then they could marry and they could actually be socially upgraded. Um, so in reality, one can say that love moves the world, <laughs> so, <Yeah>. right? <laughs> That's the point. Um, but the thing is that this type of uh, Roman uh, limitations tapered off with time, either by themselves or by special laws, like this one uh, about uh, marriage and the mm -hmm. infamous. Uh, others, for example, like the restriction of um, people working with uh, money, like merchants and um, jewelry makers and uh, people like that, like like them, could not uh, become uh, members of um, the city councils. Um, this was changed by law. So there is um, this aspect that that, that uh, these limitations actually taper off, and they mean nothing as time goes by, and there is a legal, um, uh, um, there is a legal uh, reformation of, of um, reform of that thing. So this is what, uh, what happens in Byzantium. This is, this is um, in reality, non, not much of that remains in Middle yes. Byzantium. Yeah, yeah. So just to be clear about the, <laughs> the types of delineation here. Um, so there is in um, early Byzantine or late Roman law, there are professional categories that are um, legislated by the state. Um, and uh, as you said, a number of people are, at least in theory, bound to them, even mm -hmm. in hereditary yes. ways. But it seems that there's considerable, well, it's not clear how widely this was enforced, uh, but soldiers followed their, you know, yes. their, their sons followed them mm -hmm. in the service and, and so on. So there are professional categories that are regulated by the state. And then there are these categories of people who, for mm -hmm. one reason or another, usually some sort of moral or, moral. or reasons. Of there are always moral reasons moral, attached yeah. to, to this type of reasoning. Right. I mean, to this type of classification. Right. But I think the important thing for like most modern listeners is that th there are two types of delineation that I think might loom large in our perception of pre-modern societies. And these are, first, um, that is family rights, that specific families have specific rights to mm -hmm. certain offices or to positions, and this doesn't exist. In, this is, yeah, yeah, Western Western feudalism. Yeah, well, I'm, we can talk about this later. Mm -hmm. And the second is some sort of um, economic threshold. That is, in order to hold this kind of position, you need to be wealthy to at least this degree. And I, I think that in the early Byzantine world, this holds true of the city councils. Yes. So most people in the city councils are yes. understood to be the wealthier elements. But in terms of um, serving in the army, achieving you know high military office, and even offices in the in the civil bureaucracy of the mm -hmm. state, or being at the court, or even being emperor, mm -hmm. there's no um, definition or limitation in terms of family, regional origin, 
economic status mm -hmm. and so forth. So if I understood that correctly. Uh, that is true. Um, there was uh, some type of choosing, for example, for the army, at least we know so in the 6th century. I mean, the officers were uh, allowed to choose among the people that wanted to enlist. And the army is always a very sure way of making a career because it, being a soldier came with a set of privileges, right. provided, of course, that one survived 20 or so years of of fighting and the other way is to have money like you know money changers if you have money you can always purchase a position somewhere and some if you know the right people then perhaps someone is willing would be willing to um, to give you a position in the administration and uh, this, there were uh, motives to do that for someone if you had money because uh, each position went uh, along with um, went together with uh, a set of uh, a set of privileges like for example more lenient uh, taxation handling or, yeah, or taxation taxation handling and not to mention that anybody could return to his own village and say hey i'm i am somebody so. yeah yeah social prestige and <laughs> so uh, but yeah. there were no uh, there there was no set of uh, rules regulating who becomes uh, an emperor, for example, um, apart from, I don't know, being a heretic, but you know, even heretic, even monophysite emperors never considered themselves uh, heretics. So right. it's, uh, that's, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, that's um, uh, negotiable, sure. at least. Um, and there were uh, limitations for becoming a senator, for uh, joining the, uh, the Senate of Constantinople. Um, in the 6th century, the Senate was restricted to uh, a specific number of uh, people and the emperors said, proclaimed um, or regulated that whoever had bought a, a senatorial title should stay at home uh, in his own uh, uh, country um, and not come to Constantinople because they were useless there. Yeah, they I mean, had too many senators. They had too many senators, so he said, oh, that's enough. So uh, the ones who actually participated in uh, sharing power with uh, the emperor, no matter what that was, I mean, that's another discussion uh, on this subject. Um, everybody, everybody else was... Um, stayed away from Constantinople and the senators that participated in power only stayed in Constantinople. So yeah. there's this distinction. I, I actually think that was an important development. Um, yeah. In other words, they, they created this very large body of senators, mostly wealthy men from around the they Eastern Mediterranean. They needed the money, I think. Oh, yes. You had to, yes, you paid it's to like, join the body. It's like buying a bond. I mean, if yeah. you're uh, if you're a provincial aristocrat, it's like giving your money to the state, making, yes. a, placing your money with somebody and you expect to get the benefits back. Right. But you probably won't recoup the entire cost of the investment. I thought. I think this is the like Economides, right? He made these calculations. Yeah, then, I know he did. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you didn't. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure. It depends on how long you lived. Because you know there were. I mean, there was this um, in the 11th century. Because I don't think that uh, this existed before with the senators. But in the 11th century, they were receiving the roga, the wage of their title. Um, but along with it went another set of 
uh, rules, um, I mean, regarding the um, tax exemptions, for example. I mean, they all expected to get some tax exemptions because they entered the imperial circles. Yes, plus the social prestige that comes with the titles the and, social and prestige, association yes. with the court, which you can yes. then use to become to a dinatos. Or to bu- yeah, bully people <laughs> or, you know, yes. yeah, throw your weight around. Um, and, and I think that that process was important in terms of even the, the general cohesion of the empire in the sense that all of these uh, people who bore senatorial titles and they, the, the Constantinople in a way sort of sucked up their money and sent back titles and prestige. And, and these people yes. then became like the new top ruling class in the cities locally, yes. sort of above the level of, this, of the mm-hmm. city councillors. Mm-hmm. And I think that these people who are better connected to Constantinople, I, I think they increased the coherence of the state in the provinces. But that's a, that's a different, we're getting into a different dynamic here. Uh, well, um, mm. Uh, I just wanted to say that uh, they advocate for the emperor in their provinces. So yeah, yeah. for the emperor, it's very important. And for them, it's also very important. And we need to perhaps figure out that these people do not exist in a, an empire-wide level if they are not connected with the emperor exactly. like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have a say in Greece, a saying here, which you know, I'm sure, that it's better to be first in your village than uh, be the last one uh, in the in the capital. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. that's that's uh, it has nothing to do with Byzantium. Everybody wanted to be in the capital, and they didn't want to yes. be the first uh, in the in their village. <laughs> so you, you, do you know the story? It's of, reversed. Uh, there's a story in Dorotheus of Gaza. Do you know the one? It's about a holy man, and I don't know. For some reason or another, he confronts. He he, he comes into the presence of this uh, local bigwig in, in, in Gaza. And uh, what was the point of the story? Okay, no. So he's trying to explain to this, uh, the nobleman from Gaza, what it would be, what it's like to be in heaven in the court of God. Mm-hmm. And he says, so you're, you're, you're a big shot in, in Gaza. W- what would you feel like if you went to, to Antioch? And the guy says, well, in Antioch, I'd be like a very lesser, <laughs> right, uh, lesser person compared with the, you know, the city councillors and aristocrats of Antioch. And what if you went to Constantinople and to the court? And he says, well, there I'd be like a slave. He says, well, now imagine what you would be like in the, in the court of heaven. Uh, so it's kind of this, the sense of the closer you get exactly. to Constantinople, the farther you drop, in, you know, your local yes. credentials matter less. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, just to be clear, this really is a society where having wealth matters a lot. And in some respects, it can be called a kind of plutocracy. I mean, rich people have a lot more power than, Mm -hmm. you know, than than their numbers would suggest. Um, So so I want to talk a little bit about the way in which we use the terms aristocracy or nobility sometimes in Byzantium. So just so that we can get a handle on on whether this is a social class and, and how it how it operates. Um, and so what kinds of people, so the, the, the Byzantines, the Byzantine texts, they definitely use the language of aristocracy and the language of nobility mm-hmm. in describing certain kinds of people. Um, but can we be clear about what they mean by that? Uh, what kinds of people they, what is this social class? Because if we're in the medieval West, it's a lot easier to identify them. Um, yes. W- who are they in Byzantium? 
Well, for some reason, when we talk about the aristocracy in Byzantium, we seek to find um, the parameters the, uh, that define the aristocracy in the West, as if the rest of the world didn't have an aristocracy right. before the West. So in the West, however, it is um, always connected to uh, locality and uh, bonds with the people below. I mean, feudalism is in reality supporting the, the one who is above you. And this way, um, in this way, a, a pyramid is formed, which we see very often in um, histories in, in, our, in our modern bibli bibliography about the society of, uh, of the West. The thing is that uh, um, the Western uh, aristocracy had deep local entrenchments that way. I mean, and they existed. I mean, the nobles there existed because of this entrenchment, and they did not owe anything to any king or any emperor. Um, of course, it's debatable, of course, at, at some point, but um, in reality, uh, aristocracy just grew locally in uh, the West because of the circumstances and because of its particular history and because of the weakness of central authorities, of central power. So um, uh, there is this local entrenchment and there is hereditability uh, that we see in the West. I mean, no duke or count was ever a duke or a count in the West because an emperor made him to be. Uh, they were like that because they had a hereditary right to be. Uh, but this thing does not exist in uh, Byzantium. Uh, I think that Lately, there has been, and lately, I mean, in the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, there has been um, a sort of compromise in seeing that some um, magnates had, um, uh, had the same office or the same title for a series of years, and then um, their offspring uh, also acquired the same titles or offices. And we talk about a, a hereditability in this respect. Um, and thus we try, I don't know, to identify a, a social class that would be called aristocracy in the Western sense. Um, uh, because in reality, none of us is really comfortable with admitting that there was no uh, aristocracy in Byzantium. So um, uh, I, don't, I don't think... Um, this is a media. This is this is a, a medium position. I mean, this is a, a position in the middle of things. I don't think that is the the reason. That is, um, that is uh, one of the characteristics of uh, the Byzantine aristocracy. The Byzantine aristocracy did have, um, you know, um, an idea about itself. They believed that they were noble, and they had particular terms for signaling their nobility. They were nobles in reality. They did display descent of many generations, and they did display um, wealth and locality. While all along they tried to, uh, they wanted to be part of the uh, imperial uh, circles. This was the characteristic of um, the Byzantine aristocracy. But there is a reason why we don't find the term. We find it once or twice in Ataliatis and that's it. Yes. Well, the oh. reason is 
that aristocratia in Greek has is a political term. I mean, you cannot claim it's that... It's a regime, it's a type of regime. Yes, it's about right. a, a political regime. And uh, you cannot claim that the aristi, that the best of the best rule when you have a king. Right. So you cannot really claim that you have aristocratia. And no one uses that term. Of course, they use the term aristi, which is a philosophical term and comes along with a set of moral uh, virtues, moral values that the person is supposed to, to carry. Um, but um, uh, they use more the terms Fiegonotes or Evgenis. Evgenis, yeah. They well like born. this term, which means literally, yes, well-born. Uh, and the term Fpatride, which is very rare, and uh, we meet it only, I think, a handful of times, like five or six or not more. Um, which is a very ancient term about the, no the, the nobility of ancient Athens, like classical Athens. Right. So they, the authors, uh, and I believe also the, the people that were involved in this, I mean, the nobles themselves knew what these terms meant. And this is why they use some and they leave others outside, you know, the, the narrative that we find. So how does one convince other people in Byzantium that you are well-born? Like, what are the characteristics that you would point to? Well, um, first you have descent, and then you have locality, like uh, your ancestors were at the same place at the, um, all the time, and they were perhaps involved in uh, running the cities, uh, the local councils or so. Um, and they uh, had wealth or they didn't have wealth. I mean, wealth is not that important for claiming uh, nobility, but most of the times it, we find it too. Sure. Um, and uh, of course, um, uh, they claim that once there is the empire, once, once the empire is instituted, that they have many generations of service um, to the empire, to the emperor, because as we said before, what's the point? I mean, if you're not serving the emperor, then <laughs> what are you doing here? So, um, and they, we also find um, other traits, like um, they insert in their, um, uh, uh, in their lineages um, saints, like uh, Malaini, the Malaini, for example, had sent of Dokimos. I don't know if this comes from um, from hagiography, where we see an, an a certain number of saints that claim uh, blood relation to each other in the 9th and 10th centuries, yeah. or if it comes from more ancient times, like antiquity, where um, nobles, I mean, the, the aristocracy claimed that they had a, a hero or, um, or even a god in their uh, ancestry. Uh, but it is a trend that we see resurfaces, uh, or there is all, it is always there, but we only see it in the 10th century and after, I don't know, that uh, they insert heroes and saints in their uh, genealogies. Um, Malainos is an example, and of course, uh, perhaps the most blatant example is the Macedonian emperors themselves who claimed descent oh, yes. from Constantine the Great, and according to... Um, the epistle of Theodore, Theodore of Kizikos to Alexander the Great, Alexander, even, yeah. 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 Um, the the Ataliate, I think, had the Scipios. 
No, he he talks about Botaniatis oh. as, as uh, uh, Botaniatis, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Botaniatis. And Focas from the Fabii Fa- of ancient and the Rome. Fabii, yeah, yeah. And um, there was a kind of antagonism regarding this aspect. But uh, another trait that I find very interesting is that they claim actually physical beauty. Oh yes, they're very good looking. They are very good looking. I mean, Kekafmeno says that they have to be majestic, uh, even when they talk or when they walk. And um, I mean, uh, Theophanes the Confessor is almost described as if he's a girl. He was that pretty. Uh, Callistos was very good looking. St. Callistos of the 40 Martyrs, I think. Um, and uh, these are interesting aspects. I mean, we find all these traits and um, according to... Uh, but it's a set of things and most of the times we find all of these. But sometimes the authors, might, the, authors the different authors, might give emphasis to one or the other of right. these traits. Now, the, the, what's, what's always struck me about these traits is that most of them, but not all of them, are very rhetorically manipulable. Yes. In other words... I mean, who's really going to, I mean, anyone can have noble ancestors, like the, the odds are that outside of your location, your specific region, nobody's going to know who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, good looks, well-born, well-mannered, these, these sorts of things can be, um, and I think probably were expected to be used as praise for people of power. Um, ancestry rarely went back very far and if it did it was largely like the cases you mentioned it was largely invented um i think there's actually even a law of basil ii in nine nine in 996 where he he talks about the powerful families yes and he says that none of them really survived for more than 90 or 100 years yes and in other words there was this turnover um and so, you know, there's, so there's wealth, there's being locally well-known, there's a bunch of other criteria that anybody could really claim. And, and I think we do have some cases of people who were rather middling in the social scale yes. or economic scale, but claiming the same kinds of noble virtues. I think those that couldn't be faked that easily or at all was service to the emperor, like holding... A, a position at the court, mm-hmm. an office that was recognizable, and having a title, mm-hmm. uh, which you could either be awarded by the emperor uh, or or bought. Or bought. Um, so I, in the end, it all seems to boil down to how close you are to the court um, in terms mm-hmm. of empire-wide recognition. Yes. Right. As a and and so I think that the the relationship between this aspirational nobility. And the court or the state is is sort of really fundamental, um, and and so let me put it like this: I don't know of any case of a person in in Byzantine history down to the 11th century. Mm-hmm. Now, after that, it gets a little more complicated. But down to the 11th century, I don't know of anybody who was independently of the state or service to the court so wealthy and powerful that that person mm-hmm. looms large in our sources. Yes. And had like independent means to just disregard the court and even challenge it, you know, in, enact yes. some sort of independent policy locally. I mean, apart from saints. Right. I mean, so saints can sometimes do that because they're backed by divine power and all that. But that's all in hagiographical texts. But we, like we don't have people like that. Whereas in the, you look in the West and you have all of these people who are yes. challenging kings left mm-hmm. and right. So it would seem that this aristocracy ultimately 
it comes down to uh, it's being produced by the court um, in collaboration with local elites. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that relationship is really fundamental for defining them, even though they all wanted to also be good looking. Well, you described Western feudalism, right? So uh, in reality, I mean, I mean, being away yeah. and challenging uh, an authority that is far away from you, it's like being a feudal lord, right? Or a, yeah, or a modern oligarch. Right? I mean, and today this is we, why I yeah. think uh, Kekavmenos recognizes that. I mean, he says if you're a local dynast and you don't want the emperor, what happens next? I mean, there is a specific category. When he speaks about dynasts, uh, Kekavmenos, I think, has in mind, because he was Armenian, he has in mind the Armenian feudal lords, because Armenia understood feudalism much better than Byzantium did. So he un he understands that. I mean, Kekavmenos is not really taken very, very seriously by um, right. uh, modern researchers, I think, because um, there is this uh, opinion that uh, he is uh, very conservative and is not representative of, of uh, something like that, but uh, this is not true. He's just of Armenian origin and he sees both things. He sees local authority very far away from the emperor, like in Armenia, and he sees the people that are close to the emperor. But he also says um, somewhere that um, it is your right, first of all, to enter the service of the emperor and it is your right to stay at home. And he literally says, if you stay at home, and what happens when you stay at home? And the thing is that if you read the text carefully, you see that perspective changes if you are at the service of the emperor or if you stay at home, if you are yes, an idiotist. Tremendous consequences. Um, so if you are a general at the, cent at the service of the emperor, you have to deal with your equals, with uh, other generals, with the metropolitan bishop of your area, uh, or with the emperor, for example. But if you stay at home, you have to deal with um, uh, with uh, employments of the state that uh, apply taxation in your region. You right. have to deal with the peasants in your uh, area. So it's kind of different. Um, but uh, uh, as you say, exactly as you say, I mean, if you stay at home, you cannot have this type of, um, or at least uh, it's not that easy to have this type of authority and influence at court, even though you might be respected because someone will have heard of you, for example. Um, there is also this text of Philaretos. Philaretos, I mean, the, 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 the biographer, yes. yes. Uh, his biographer claims that he had absolutely nothing to do with the court, right? I mean, I don't know if we have to believe that, if we can believe that or not. But it is very interesting to see that Philaretos is a person who also deals a lot with the peasants in his area. And whenever they have a problem, the peasants come to him and they say, oh, my cow died, died. oh, my horse died, or I don't have anything to eat, please give me something to eat. So this is a type of authority of influence that is exercised at the local level. Um, it is worth worthy of note that, that um, the, the, the life of Philaretos is modeled, I mean, in the beginning at least, it is modeled on the model of, jo of uh, Job, St. Eov. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
uh, and um, uh, uh, Job had um, a number of herds, and the biographer of Philaretos also has that also says that Philaretos has uh, owned a very large number of um, herds, like oxen, cows, horses, whatever, sheep. Um, but he was not very comfortable with um, with just herds, just cattle. I mean, it's not something that the Byzantine civilization accepted like just like that, because it's, I mean, being a herdsman implies in reality that you are away mm. from civic civilization, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. That you move from place to place. Uh, so he added, he, I mean... The biographer added that uh, Philaretos was in reality a, a landed um, a magnate. He owned a very large number of uh, uh, estates, of landed estates, and not one, not three, not six, not even ten, 48 estates. He owned 48 estates and <laughs> several yeah. very large herds. So uh, he was a really, really, really rich man and... Um, we don't really know how influencing, what, what type of influence he could exercise, I mean, in uh, Constantinople at the time. We know that his, I think it is his great-granddaughter that married uh, Constantine VI and not, his grand, not just his granddaughter. So we're talking about three or four generations right. of, of, of people within the same century. Yeah, but we have to add that his biography is being written by one of his descendants yes. who has an interest in telling, you know, this is one of those cases of it is creating a, a yeah, noble it is, ancestor. It is tampered. It is a biography yeah, oh, that absolutely. is tampered. Yeah, personally, personally, I'm kind of skeptical about that life. And also the stories about uh, Danielis and the Peloponnese. Um, this is yeah. a, a, a rich woman who allegedly, you know, helped out uh, Basel, the, the Emperor Basel I before he was emperor. And, and her wealth is described in the Peloponnese in the 10th century text. I'm, I'm personally skeptical of both of those stories. I think they're modeled on, you mentioned Job, um, and Danielis is modeled on the, the, the Queen of Sheba and mm -hmm. characters in the Alexander romance. And I think the data from those texts is often used uncritically to extract like economic uh, these data. These are literally more li literary. Literary, models. yeah. I, yes. I, I so we we needn't take them uh, too much for granted. I mean, <laughs> okay, the biographer says one thing, but it's not. Uh, I mean, it it works to prove something, and this is what we always uh, we must always have in mind when we see these type of sources. Yeah, they I have mean, this is agenda. all constructed. I mean, especially the uh, the life of Philaretos and. Uh, Stephanus Continuatus, the story, I mean, the fifth book, I mean, it's entirely, it's, it's constructed, it's, it's a construction. Yeah. There's layers upon layers of narrative with particular purposes, and the purposes are to justify, not only justify, but to prove that Basil I was actually in a good position when he became emperor. Yeah, yeah. So that and, he climbed step by step, and, like, to, yeah, and, and he did everything by the book. Yeah, and to put That's, his life within narratives that resemble yes. those of Solomon and those of Alexander, and because those are both figures yes, that he used in his reign. and uh, delineate his uh, nobility, I would yeah, say, yeah. that he has all these characteristics. I mean, okay, perhaps he was poor, but at some point he became rich. I mean, and no matter if he was nobody, but you know, but 
very long a very long time ago there was this uh, Constantine the right. Great and Alexander the Great yeah, yeah. and you know and he was related he comes from that so we've talked about this so aristocracy I'm putting in quotation marks uh, yes, you quotation. can't see me but uh, air quotes um, and or, or nobility or po- possibly we can even at some point revive the category of ruling class uh, uh, we don't use that so much but anyway maybe maybe you don't like that but uh, so we've we've examined this this ruling class through um, the lens of let's say their their economic standing and 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 by the way I I'm coming to the conclusion that great wealth in Byzantium down to this period 11th century or so is more easily acquired through state service than through just private means like having land and so on I mean mm-hmm. I, I think that their salaries and benefits of office probably generated more wealth. Uh, yes. Just as an economic decision, it mm-hmm. made more sense to you know move up the hierarchy than to try to buy more land. Um, but anyway, we'll set that aside. We've also looked at um, the the how important service to the state was for many of them, just in terms of their social standing and you know rising up into this social class. Um, of office holders and and title holders. There's another aspect of looking at these people that you talk about, which is locally how they are the powerful, the dinati. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, And this is a term that a number of legal and narrative sources use. They they rarely ever define exactly who they mean. Most of the times we can can tell who they mean. Uh, But this also is kind of one of these very fluid categories. Mm -hmm. Um, of the powerful and they're usually doing bad things. Uh, can you talk a little bit about them? Like, so who's this category now? So um, they are defined only in the 10th century, right? But um, in reality, the term is the translation of a very, very old uh, Latin term, the potentes. Um, they took the potentes from the Latin sources, translated into Greek, and uh, there, there, uh, thereafter we find it in many, in many a source, with emphasis in the 6th century and in the 10th century. Right. But we see its impact even in sources that are much later than the 10th century, like we see uh, allusions to it um, uh, in uh, 14th century sources, for example. I mean, they still mention the dinati um, the way it suits them. Um, but they were defined in the 10th century, um, and they were defined, it was a, a, a narrow definition, and it has nothing to do with the with social classes we define it today. I mean, it's not who is superior and who is... Um, uh, inferior in uh, in their perception. It's about uh, who holds actually um, state office, and they they say. I mean, according to the legislation, the dinatos, a powerful, is a person who is in the state service and has some type of office or title, n- uh, no matter notwithstanding. I mean, the the military, the ecclesiastical, the civil sector. Uh, or even in the army. In the army, it goes down to the simple uh, soldiers of the professional uh, guards regiments, which is, I mean, in the end, it becomes a very large definition, even though it is narrowed to those who are holding state office. I mean, you can't, when you put um, the magistros, for example, the magistri, those who had the title of the magister, 
in Byzantium, in, in Byzantium with um, the generals and the metropolitan bishops and the soldiers, the simple soldiers, then everything becomes really negotiable. So what comes out of these uh, laws is that in in the end they were not really interesting uh, interested in um, uh, defining a social class through these uh, laws, but to define power in very specific contexts that could be very localized contexts, like in a simple village. Um, let's say that uh, you live in a small village and someone has bought, um, has, press, has exercised pressure on you to um, give him uh, your little piece of land. Um, that let's say that he doesn't give you the money that is uh, that your land is worth, and he gives uh, less than that. What happens when you are a simple farmer and he is a soldier, for example? What happens when you are uh, a soldier and he is an officer? It's not just about you being a little farmer, a small farmer, and the other one being, for example, I don't know, uh, a general. It doesn't really matter because there are other categories inside local societies. And in reality, what these laws do is to define uh, power within these type of local um, localized contexts. Right. So these laws are trying to define um, an, an element of local society that is in the position to exert pressure in economic transactions. Like they, that's yes. really what. So the dinati might, the powerful, they might be defined in terms of their office or their position, and some texts do that. But they're really also those. They're also defined in terms of a of a behavior, which yes. is bullying. You know, uh, the weaker or the poorer Bull elements yes. of local society to sell their land or and, and so forth. And I think uh, sometimes that the, the church or church institutions mm -hmm. and monasteries. Are also put into the category of the powerful. Yes, they are incriminated for that. When yeah, when they're also trying to acquire lands mm -hmm. and and so forth. So, and and the church, I mean, monasteries are not office holders, though they they have certain you know tax exemptions. They have tax exemptions and they and they have connections and the laws right. uh, say specifically that it's not only them but everybody who's around them. So if you're a friend of an abbot. For example, you can be classified in this category right. of the of the powerful, or if you're a friend of a general, or if you are related to someone, okay, some yes. way, so this is an like through category. marriage, through yeah, marriage, yeah. or uh, I don't know, through uh, godfathership. I mean, <laughs> right. you may you might have you know a general like Nikki Forrest forecast for your as your godfather. <laughs> Right. There are there are um, uh, ways of social promotion, as we as we say, um, as we speak of them. I mean, um, and marriage, um, godfathership, and um, uh, adoption adoption also comes along. Um, are ways of social promotion. So low people belonging to the lower social strata would actually want to connect to these great sure, families. Yes, yes. And there are ways to do that in local societies. Yeah, and uh, yeah, baptism is, is baptism. one of them. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this 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 class is potentially very very large, um, and so so let's look at the flip side of it, the other side. Uh, so who are the poor 
who are being oppressed or oh, bullied the by poor. that. It's the poor. The poor are in reality never ever very closely defined. I mean, there is a very general uh, definition found in the Roman legislation, the Latin uh, sources, that is um, word by word translated into Greek and included in Justinian's corpus. Um, uh, it sets poverty to the amount of uh, 50 uh, coins and we have absolutely no idea what this means because the law does not elaborate whether it is um, whether it refers to the possession of the number of coins like if it is silver coins or uh, gold coins or even copper coins no one knows whether it concerns um, the possession of land of this of this value, or the possession of items of this value, like yeah. chairs and tables and objects like that. Uh, so it's in reality, it's up to the judge to decide who was poor in a very particular context, and the um, the goal there would be rather to protect the poor. So. One can claim that he is poor and gets uh, and gets this protection, especially in the 10th century and after all this legislation against the the dynasty. But in other contexts as well, it doesn't uh, mean. I mean, uh, we don't need to wait for uh, the um, 10th century to um, uh, to see that happening. To um, uh, I don't know to uh, lo- to find it in the sources. So um, the poor in reality um, are uh, this category of people who do not have the means to um, put up any resistance to the powerful. Um, this is much more, much, a much more interesting view uh, to see them. And this is the reason why this, they remain undefined, actually, because they, the judges were supposed to see each case, each and every case, separately. But at the same time, they must have enough land to make its acquisition worthwhile. Like, they're not indigent. They're not completely without resources. You can be poor in a city. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the law is not interested whether you have uh, land or not. I mean, it is never. I mean, being poor is never um, connected with land possession. But why would the powerful want to acquire your land? I mean. Aren't most of these if laws... you have land well if you have land maybe then someone most of the times from the documents that we have from the archival documents for example we see the monasteries rounding up their their possessions in a particular um, region for example they have half a village but they'd like to have the entire village right. <laughs> so they they set out you know to to round up their possessions there so that they might exploit that better. So you're right. laughing. Right? Yeah. We're not. Yeah, we're just rounding up here. Don't nothing to see here. Okay. Yeah. So this is. I mean, we see that in. Uh, you know, we see that in uh, in the act in the uh, archival documents of the tenth, eleventh, thirteenth, fourteenth century, for example. We do. Yeah. We do that. I mean, they buy tiny, tiny little pieces of land, like 10, 10 stremata, 10 modi. Right. A modius was, I mean, for the audience, a modius uh, was about um, a thousand square meters uh, surface. Uh, so they buy 10 modi or 15 modi, or sometimes they 
they accept uh, to buy 10 modi, but they also accept the donation of the other 10 modi, which means that the one who actually alienates the property had in total 20 modi to give away to the monastery, to give to the monastery. And he accepts in reality to be paid for half of that. Right, right. Okay. Said, okay. Take, plus, the, take the take the rest and spiritual. please commemorate yes, me. You know, commemorate services. me in your prayers. You know, because yeah. I am your now your donator. So the so the state was in. It seems to be in a paradoxical situation here, where it was creating the powerful through its yes. offices and salaries, but then in its legislation, constantly attacking them, sometimes in pretty harsh language. Yes. To to curb their abuses in mm -hmm. in the provinces. That, yeah, that's a difficult uh, thread, uh, needle to thread. Ah, it always impressed me, you know, ever since I was a student, because there is this tiny little um, word used by Constantine VII in his novel on the, on the soldiers, and he calls the military, he calls them, all of them, he calls all of them ants. Mirmiges. Ants? He calls them ants. I didn't catch that. What does he mean? Yeah, it's Mirmigia. Yeah, I mean, no, but, but I mean, what does... I mean, he, uh, he dug up this word from St. John Chrysostom and applied it to the military, just in general, like generals, officers, simple soldiers. And he says, oh, you know, they are the worst of people. They are like ants and um, they are uh, negligent uh, in their duties and... Uh, they can be bought off, and he says all these horrible things against them. So there is this polemic against them. Right. I mean, there is really a very bad picture that that is um, sketched in uh, in these uh, texts against the dynasty and against all these people who might be in a position, you know, to intimidate others in order to advance their own social position and their own uh, wealth. Um, the truth is, I do not know exactly why that is. I mean, why the polemic? Why such polemic? I mean, okay, I can gather that um, they wanted to check perhaps the um, uh, ideological expansion of the aristocracy, you know, proclaiming the, no, their nobility, their descent, uh, the use of their wealth in which they took pride. Um, it was really, you know, like uh, something tickling the, the emperor's ear or something like that. Uh, so they, they, they wanted to check the ideological advance of that group. And on the other hand, they, of course, as um, modern bibliography says, and as is implied in the, in the text, they wanted to check the source of wealth that funded, that supported the nobility because um, there was um, the fear that it might at some point perhaps turn against them. Um, but this again to me, I mean, it seems uh, inadequate. So in reality, um, I can't really, I mean, I don't find these explanations very, very um, convincing. I think it works better for me as a researcher on the ideological level. I see a great, huge class there, I mean, uh, ideological class between the central authority and um, the aristocracy. Uh, it may have been a result of Basil's, Basil, uh, Basil's coup of 867, uh, 
um, because Basile himself was not, I mean, he was not a part of the aristocracy, he was not a noble himself, and therefore he had to build all, the, yeah, uh, all that construction that we yeah. uh, talked about before. Um, but I think this part needs perhaps to be investigated further and perhaps someone should take a look at this time um, all over again with a different perspective taken, uh, taking into consideration everything that we know so far and all these modern uh, you know, approaches that are very uh, right to the point and really um, uh, could lead to very different conclusions regarding the 9th century and the 10th century too. For example, uh, I know that now we believe that um, some of the, a part of the aristocracy's uh, roots can be traced back even to the 7th century. So someone should check that, um, that course yeah. through time that leads to the 9th and 10th centuries with a view, you know, to this type of ideological conflict. Okay. Yeah, no, that, I, I think that we have a lot more work to do on Byzantine social history, especially as we become increasingly convinced to set aside categories from other societies that have been imposed yes. um, on it. Um, and uh, I, I, for one, am not convinced that there is a systemic... Um, sort of a structural opposition between the court and the aristocracy as such, which is not to say that, you know, emperors weren't concerned to keep, mm -hmm. you know, powerful men yes. in their place, um, but that there was some kind of structural opposition, I think, was, uh, 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 you know, it's a legacy from 100 years ago or so, and I think there were historians who were trying to find Marxist class conflict. Yes, and, definitely. Yeah, and... and the 11th century in particular became this, or the 10th and 11th centuries became this place where Byzantium belatedly, like, finally catches up mm -hmm. with the feudalization and all, all of this. And, and I just don't see that you know, that's um, happening. Anyway, we can we can talk about that. Some. So just to just to wrap up, um, tie all these threads together. So we've we've looked at different groups under different aspects. Um, be it economic, service to the state, local, their rhetoric about genealogies and so forth. Is there a concept of Byzantine society that holds all of this together? Mm. No, I, I don't think in reality that there is. We have the term polity, politia, which is the closest to it. Uh, society doesn't work because it was a legal term. I mean, kinonia, it meant a legal bond. An association. Yeah. Association, societas yeah. in, um, in Latin. Um, but uh, polity is closer uh, since um, there is this um, uh, fading off of the limitations. Uh, and this works to include... Right. Uh, people that were normally not included in such um, in such a perception, you know, because the polity is always is, I mean, the the, the ancient conception of polity is of uh, an organization that is uh, uh, in which um, constituent parts are involved uh, and they share in power. Uh, and that is the polity, and all the rest is outside the polity. I mean, everybody else is uh, outside, stays outside the polity, but this uh, appears to have um, 
uh, faded away in uh, early Byzantium already because there are all these groups of people that um, the state knew they existed, like the poor. Um, and um, uh, what is uh, nice about this is that um, all throughout, I mean, it begins as a Roman state, but as it progresses, um, one has the feeling that um, Byzantium was not in reality, did not want to be a state of uh, the powerful and the rich and the noble. They wanted to be a state of, uh, of everybody. And uh, being uh, an for an emperor, being the emperor of the poor people, being the head of the poor people, really meant that he had some kind of legitimation. So he had to reach out to them. So the polity is all inclusive at this time. I mean, especially yeah. from the sixth century onward, it is all inclusive and it includes all people. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I also see the. Uh the falling away of all these legal categories that uh, kept people in their yes. place that that you know i think the most of those drop away by the 6th century and i do see a a concern in the legislation for the well-being of the whole of society even in acknowledgement of certain conflicts locally like between mm -hmm. the powerful and the poor um, i think the state liked at least rhetorically to present itself yes. as the defender of the poor and the weak which is an old Roman idea too, you know, the Virgil, right? Strike down the, the superbia yes. of the powerful and so forth. Um, and I, I think that the term polity is, it, it doesn't mean society, but I think in Byzantine usage, it, it, it's a term that encompasses both what we call state and what we call yes. society. And it's kind of this, yes. this term that merges those two things. It has uh, this twofold I mean, yeah. significance. Uh, yeah. Whenever, I mean, according to context, Yes, no, it's it's very oh, yes. uh, adaptable to different, you know, and it means different things in different contexts. <clears throat> but overall, I think it, it had, and I don't think that they distinguished between state and society in the way in which we do since, you know, Thomas Hobbes or, or something. Anyway, good, we're, we're out of time. Um, the closing question I ask my guests is to recommend two books mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, not necessarily about this topic, just good reads. Well, it read. will be about this topic because I don't read other things apart, <laughs> okay. you know, from Byzantium. Well, I've been reading a little of sociology okay. and a little of philosophy lately <laughs> because of this, yeah, uh, yeah. Of this uh, approach. Um, well, uh, I'd say uh, when it comes to Byzantine society, um, I'd recommend, of course, uh, Seinet. Um, pouvoir contestation for those who speak French and um, yours, the Byzantine Republic. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I, I, I should remind people not to mention my books. Oh, why? <laughs> oh, yes, you should have. Yes, yes, you should have. <laughs> but no, this is uh, this is payback, you know, because you said so many good things about <laughs> me. So you know. <laughs> Well, you should okay. get something in return, you know. Oh, I do. Is, no, I enjoy doing these. Because this yeah. is this is bonding, you know, in a, in a, a Byzantine kind of way. <laughs> like a podcast. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it's it's been a pleasure and I look forward to doing this again when when you've Yeah, you know, me too. Thank you very much. Here. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.